0: Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the incredible opportunity that it is to be able to worship with our brothers and sisters, to be able to be of one mind together underneath your scripture, knowing that you have prepared this moment for us, that you have been waiting for us to be here, that you have prepared our hearts to hear from you, and that you are already working, that as we hear your word this morning, we are joining in with you in a work That began on the cross and has continued forward to today. So I pray that our hearts would be open to what you're doing, that our ears would be attentive, um, and that we would see ourselves the way you see us fully in Christ, competent, and able to do the things that you've called us to because of your great love. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, everyone. Um, My name is Sam Parrish. I am not the pastor at UBC. Jeremiah Smith has asked me to teach again. I was with you all back in October of last year, and as we joke around in our small group, anybody can make the mistake to ask you to talk one time, but if they ask you to speak again, I guess you did okay the first time. So I'm back with you today. If you've been with us at UBC for any amount of time, you'll know that we're going through a series on the courageous life through the book of Romans, and we're in Romans again today. So if you want to turn to Romans 12 while I'm talking, um, that's that's where we're going to start. Um, So, as you've heard in the music and in the children's sermon, um, we are looking at what God calls us to do now as we are living the Christian life. We have spent weeks and weeks and weeks going through what does it mean to be in Christ, and now we are transitioning decisively into what do we do in light of that. Paul made this transition for us um, a little bit at the end of 11, really for sure at the start of 12. 12. And we're going to be looking at an extended passage today um, in verses 9 through 21 of Romans that really covers more than 33 commands that God has for us towards each other as a family of faith, and then more broadly to the world around us. Um, I have been asked to make sure that we get to lunch on time with our family, and so 33 commands in however many minutes. I ate a good breakfast. We'll be here together as long as it takes. No, um, I want us to be able to leave today fully convinced that the commands of God are not burdensome. That though we have a weighty and extended passage in Romans ahead of us, that what God has called us to is actually a light burden. It is an easy yoke. What he has asked us to do can be a hope-generating, life-giving, joyful expression towards one another and the world, if we can get ourselves out of the way in the process. So, we're going to read the text. Uh, we'll be, like I said, Romans 12, 9 through 21. Um, you know that I like big ideas, and so I'm going to give you a couple of those at the start, and then you can blame Paul for the fact that this text does not have a great outline. So, we'll, we'll work through it together. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. So, if we were to attempt to summarize both what Paul has given us at the start of chapter 12 and in the first 11 and, a half ver- uh, 11 and a half chapters with what we have in front of us, I've come up with two big ways to say it to try and anchor the remaining 33 commands or so that we have. Um, and so, if you're note takers, this is a great place to start. Jesus's righteousness serves as the foundation of our obedience and mutual care within the family of Christ and our guarantee of vindication before our enemies. Jesus' righteousness serves as the foundation of our obedience and mutual care within the family of Christ and guarantees our vindication before our enemies. Or, God's mercy frees us to live lives of sacrificial love towards one another in the world with full assurance of his perfect justice. As I alluded to at the start, Jesus promises us in Matthew 11, that if we come to him heavy, laid down, that he would give us rest, that his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and that walking with him is meant to be a joy-filled, hope-filled experience. But I don't know how, about how all of you respond to Paul when he does this, because he does this in Romans 12. He does this after he talks about gifts in 1 Corinthians 13. He does it in Ephesians 3. He says, this is how you should be, and lists a whole lot of things that I'm very, very bad at. And so I look at the text and see this is what courageous living is supposed to look like, and I walk away exhausted and on the edge of despair, because when I see my ability to put forward into the world the things that God has ostensibly said is going to be how I follow him, I fall immeasurably short of my ability to get this done. And that's why, here at the start, before we jump into the commands, I think it is worth thinking through, why are these commands here in the first place? Martha got us started. There are things in our lives that need to be worked out. And just because we've come to Christ and been declared righteous, those things still need to be worked out of our lives, and we don't realize they're there until someone goes, let love be genuine. And then you ask the question, why would I be told let love be genuine if it wasn't possible for love to be hypocritical. If it wasn't possible for me to do the opposite of these commands, I would not be commanded to do them in the first place. And so you sit and ponder, why would, why would I be commanded to do this if it wasn't not just possible, but it was expected? The Holy Spirit knew that even as a redeemed person, it might be possible for my love to be hypocritical, going through all the, the commands that we've been given. And so I sit under the lens of Isaiah 55, the word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent. And considering the fruit of that question, what does it mean that if God gives his commands that he's going to be faithful to work them out in my life, it means that I need to do the things that he asks me to do, that he commands me to do, whether my assurance um, in my ability to do them is there or not. So now I'm kind of adrift. I have this command, I should do these things, but I need to do them whether I feel like I'm good at it or not. What is anchoring me down? Like, what is, what is keeping me firm in the midst of not knowing how I'm going to get all the things, the, these things done or really even knowing how God's going to work these things out in my life? And the wonderful thing is, is that Paul has spent 11 and a half chapters telling us what that foundation is. And so we're going to talk about it again, because if we don't, then this list that you see in front of you is going to become a perpetual source of exhaustion and despair in your life as you consistently try and follow Jesus and don't understand why you can't. We can only fulfill the commands of Romans 12 if we have full assurance in Paul's argument in the first 11 half chapters, that if you are in Christ, you're good. Paul calls this righteousness. It's a big word. We've talked about it for over a year. But if we don't understand what righteousness means, both for us and for the world, we will not find the commands of God light and easy. We will find them exhausting. And I know, because well, we'll get to that. I don't want to cue the music people to come up here and start singing too soon. We know that Paul is talking about righteousness here, even though the passage doesn't explicitly say it, because he starts us in chapter one by saying, in view of God's mercies. So, what are these mercies? If you've been with us or you've studied the scriptures, you know that the mercies of God are endless. We could stay up here all afternoon with a big whiteboard. I love whiteboards. We could write them all down, get a couple of different colors. It's fantastic. Whiteboards are my friend. But what, we, what is pertinent to today's conversation is the righteousness of God because he starts in chapter 1 saying that we don't have it. In chapter 3, what it takes to get it. In chapter 6, and following who it applies to. And is, he is assuming by the time we get to this point that we understand what righteousness is. Romans 3, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith Jesus calls us to present ourselves as a holy acceptable gift to God and that is only possible if we are settled in the source and sustaining promise of our righteousness being in Christ and not your ability to generate it if you find yourself sitting in front of the text and going, I can't do this, there's a really good chance that all of the margin in your spiritual life has been eaten up by your own efforts to try and support a version of righteousness that is yours, not Jesus's, and your repetitive inability to meet that standard. And the beautiful thing is that if you are feeling that this morning, the Holy Spirit is already at work in you, showing you that you do not have what you need, and this very morning can be free of it. That you have the opportunity to say these things that are in my heart that I am using to believe that I am good with God. Righteousness. How we are good with God. How God's justice and mercy appropriately apply to the world. You have the opportunity to let go of that. If you've grown up in Baptist circles very long, you know that invitations typically happen at the end of a sermon, not towards the front. But I do want to give a small invitation this morning, and that's the invitation to jump ship for the rest of the sermon if you'd like to and hang out in Romans 6 or Philippians 3. If this idea of righteousness is something that the Holy Spirit is working in you that you don't quite understand, but is something that you want, something that he is saying... I am working this out in you, but you don't quite understand it yet. The rest of what I say will be on a recording. The most important part of this passage is understanding that our goodness, our rightness, our ability to stand before God is entirely based on the finished work of Christ. And if that is not settled for you this morning, there are people on the pew with you who would love to be able to kind of take a little quiet moment and help you settle that while we work through the rest of this. And then you can join us at the end. I'll I'll pull you back in towards the end if if you take some moments. The other thing that can happen happen to us when we read these commands is that we read them with a large asterisk. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Trust him that he, you know, repay no one evil for evil, but trust in his vengeance. But then I feel a large asterisk that says, but maybe not all the time. You know, these commands as they come up there are exceptions. There are things that maybe I have a better handle on than God does. And once again, those moments occur because we are trying to figure out how can I still support the overall work that God is doing in me and feel resistance to the second piece of why we have these rules, so to speak, is to root out idols in our heart. Because there are things in our heart that make us still want even after we have full assurance in who Jesus is that are still nefarious insidious little things that if we weren't told to not do them as I said at the start we wouldn't know that they were still in me seek to show hospitality that's a command it's not a suggestion but God I don't have enough margin in my life to show hospitality because I'm trying to work to get my bills paid and maintain my social relationships and serve up at the church on Wednesday night. And we realize that, once again, all of that margin that the Lord has given us to follow his commands are being eaten up by other things that may not actually be what he has for us at this time. And so we see that God's commands both prove to us that our righteousness is fully in Christ and that if we're going to follow him, we still have righteous or unrighteous idols that we need to repent of and move forward from. So then, in view of God's mercy, as these idols are being worked out of our hearts, let's figure out how we're going to live as agents of his mercy first and how we act towards each other here as a family um, and then towards people and circumstances more broadly in the world. Verse 9. One of the things that Paul does consistently throughout um, his letters is he uses different analogies to talk about who we are as groups of Christians. He just finished, in the verses preceding this section, talking to us about who we are as a body. He does this in several places. It's very interesting because this pattern, as I've mentioned, exists throughout his letters where we are told we are a body, we have various gifts, we work together, and then directly following that is a command to love. And we see that again here in this passage. And the reason why that's important is because we are not just a body, not being able to say to our hands and feet, You are not a part of me. We are a group of people who did not choose each other, who have been chosen by God, and now have to work together to move his kingdom forward. And I don't know about any of you, but I despise group projects. You don't always get to pick who you're in the group project with. There is always someone on the team who doesn't seem to turn in their part of the report. You're sitting there at the desk getting ready to do your PowerPoint, and slides four, five, and six are empty, and that person isn't at the table. And so when I see, in view of God's mercy, you are in a family, this is how we should act, I get anxious because I'm like, I know how people are. And I know what it means to live uncomfortably with people that I did not pick. And that's why Paul tells us, you got to start by learning how to love each other. So that's our first command. Love must be without hypocrisy. Now, in most translations, it just says, let love be genuine, let love be pure. Um, But the actual word there is without hypocrisy. And this is important if you've ever been in a family or if you've ever been in a group, because how incredibly disappointing is it when you have put your heart out before people, you have decided you're committed to the group, but then you discover somewhere along the way this person that you have committed your life to, whether in an organization or um, another type of group, doesn't have the same heart for you that their actions seem seem to show. How disappointing is it to find out that someone was loving you because of what you could offer them, or loving you because of the connections that you have in your network, or loving you because it was expedient at at the time, or in some cases, loving you to set you up for for future pain. And Paul says, we all have the capacity to do that. Like, you can look up and down your pew and realize there, in your own heart, have been opportunities where you have sought to love someone, and that love has come from a place of self-interest and self-serving rather than what he's saying here in terms of letting love be genuine. And so we start with letting love be genuine, letting love be authentic, not letting love not be hypocritical, because then each of the commands that follow buttress those to build out a real familial love. We'll skip the Abhor What is Evil section and come back to it because it's a little out of place in his thought line here. You may see in your text, I'm, I'm in the ESV, Love one another with a brotherly affection. In the original language, we have some really cool things happening here. Everyone knows Philadelphia, brotherly love, that's the brotherly affection piece at the end. But we have a second word for love that Paul kind of invents, at least this form of it, in the first part, philostorge, not to weigh this too much down, but Storge love is the love that comes from being in a family. It non-selective love it's the love that you feel towards people that you didn't pick and really couldn't pick you this is a love that i was aware of because i do come from a family i do have parents and sisters but a love that i did not feel until i had daniel who was my two-year-old and being able to sit with him at two o'clock in the morning with sinus drainage keeping him from sleeping with all the little love that I have for him, and in that moment realizing, this is not just how I'm loved by God, but this sacrificial, marginless, measureless, community love is how UBC loves me. That when we are working best together, that sacrificial, measureless love is what binds us together. We joined this church six years ago, um, we joined this church in a history. We, were, we joined it in the midst of a story. Um, y'all didn't really get to pick us other than voting us in at a business meeting one week. Um, but we decided to be here, and since we've been here, we have experienced non-selective love. It's the love that comes from going through very difficult things together, realizing that in the crucible, you've got someone next to you. Realizing that at no point in this journey have I been left alone, not just because God is faithful and he has a spirit with us, but he has given me brothers and sisters who come alongside me each step of the way to love me well. And when we are devoted to one another and that kind of love, we find that we have an obligation to each other's feelings, that what you're feeling, what you're experiencing at any given moment is part of my responsibility. That I, am, I am required to help carry the things that you feel, the things that you experience, and to help remind you of the good things that God has called us to, because that non-selective um, family love endures beyond our circumstances. It is, it is, it is more than just affection. Um, I, I like the translation with devoted, because it is an intentional I am with you um, that extends even just beyond our feelings. And so, Paul has given us the opposite of this word um, in Romans 1 when he's going through his list of all of the qualities of people who are far from God. You know, it's, it's a very heavy section at the end of Romans 1. Um, they have uh, no faithfulness, no joy, no hope, and the no love there is that no storge. It's not like they don't have, the people who are far from God don't have um, the ability to love. They don't have the ability to love in this family-committed devoted sense that is what supports the rest of this passage Um, beyond just love we have honor outdo one another in showing honor Um, this shows us that our love is not meant to just be mutual but it's meant to be not self focused that there isn't a proper posture of our love towards one another that is seeking what is best for us That no matter what I think or feel about anyone on any particular day, the way that the church moves forward is if my heart is towards showing honor towards those of you who are here. And my trust is that if we are working together as a body, the Holy Spirit will be prompting you to do the same thing for me. And what it means is that at no point do I have to scrounge or dig around or fuss about For things that are going to support me emotionally that are going to support my ego that are going to make me the center of attention remember my goodness is rooted in righteousness my okayness is rooted in what christ has done on the cross and so i can outdo you in showing honor because at no point do i have to be worried about where my honor rests jesus has got that and so i can give my life we can give our lives to outdoing one another and showing honor, giving people their appropriate deserves, their their, their rewards um, amongst each other as a family, because I'm good, I'm okay. Lastly, abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. Now, this one is hard because the word abhor is the closest we can get to this funny grammatical double negative that exists in Greek, Um, Anytime we double negative in English, it negates things. There's a a double negative of emphasis in the Greek, and so we call it abhor. But there needs to be an intense, a burning, a a motivational um, distaste for evil that we tend to think of as a distaste for evil out there. And it motivates a lot of very angry rhetoric coming from in here to out there when the text is not saying that at all in this passage. Abhor what is evil is saying, if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ and you see evil at work in their lives, you are going to love them enough to say something about it. Nothing would grieve me more than for someone in this room to be sitting here unable to hear what I think God has for us through this text because you have seen something in my life that God needs to work out and have not said something about it. We are all blind to our own sin. There are things that the Holy Spirit intentionally gives our brothers and sisters to speak into our lives as a gentle hand, as a piece of, like a Holy Spirit tweezers, to pull out the things that we cannot see. And we have an obligation to one another to gently come alongside and say, this thing, it's going to destroy you. It is eating you alive. And God has a freedom for you that is available in Christ, let's walk together towards something better. I don't know what that will look like every step of the way, but I know where we're going, and I'm with you for as long as it takes. So we abhor what is evil and we cling to what is good. We find what is good and we don't let go. If we know that there is something good in someone's life or there is something good in the body, we do not allow something difficult or something costly or some outside force to take away from us the things that we know are good. And Paul gives us a very, very clear answer here. What is good is our love for one another. We do not allow the difficulties that we will face as a body or as individual Christians to drive out the love that we have for one another. And we preserve that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it it continues on. I forgot to give you my Fs, but these are the the Fs that we're going through. We have an appropriate obligation to each other's feelings, fervency, and finances. We just did feelings. Fervency, next. Um, That second section. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. There are activities that I should be engaging in that you should expect me to be engaging in. If you see me showing up every week and it looks like Sam is just kind of here to consume we have an obligation to one another to say, what's going on there? You seem tired. Not just tired, but you seem to be out of step with what the Holy Spirit has for us as a body. And so what Paul is saying in this part of the text is that if we are a family, if we are committed to one another, we really, really, really need to understand how our energy, our focus, our determined effort, um, slothful in zeal, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, um, patient and tribulation, how those things motivate the the kind of activity that we engage in. And I don't have time to get into each one of these, but one of the things I'd like you to think about as you're reading through this text is why he pairs the particular words he does with the situations. The, the clearest example for me is rejoicing and hope. Hope is something that we don't know is going to happen. It's something that is an anchored belief in a future event, something that we have good reason to believe is coming, but don't actually have the full set of evidence for is now. How easy is for our process of hope to slip into despair and bitterness? Because this thing that we, were, we expected to come, this thing that we know is out there, something that God may have even in his goodness promised us, hasn't happened yet. Or it didn't happen in the way that we expected. And so his commands here... The the verbs that we have in combination with, with the nouns. Rejoice in hope are the very, very kind and specific ways that we can buttress against our inability to fulfill the thing that we're commanded to do. And so don't just have hope. Don't just have an anchored belief that something is out there that you should be pursuing or that God has promised. Rejoice in the process that it takes to get from where you are now. To that hoped-for thing even if you don't know when that thing is coming. Patient in tribulation. I get mad in tribulation. You have put your finger on the back of my head and made my life more difficult because of something that I believe is good. You have accused me of something I did not do for whatever your personal motivation is. I am not patient in tribulation. I'm frustrated in tribulation. But how much more like Christ do we become when we embody patience in the midst of difficulty? And not just difficulty, but active antagonation. And so each one of these, our fervency, each one of the things that we bring in our activity to each other as a family, um, you have an obligation. We have an obligation to each other to both do them and expect them. And then lastly, finances. Um, It is impossible to get away from the word contribute there, meaning anything other than our money. Contribute to the needs of the saints. We have an obligation to each other with our finances. If we see a brother or sister in need and we have the resources to it, we are commanded to meet the need. This is one of those that has the giant asterisks in your head. But I don't have, but I don't know, but I can't do... No, the text here does not give us that room. There are other places in Scripture where we can talk about maybe some situational things here. But the text that we're under today, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality if I have something and you are in need, you are entitled to it. How can we live that way if our goodness is not anchored in the righteousness of Christ? I'm just going to keep saying it. How can I have any assurance that my needs are going to be met if my brothers and sisters have a right to the things that I have worked very, very hard to possess? Because I don't possess them. They're not mine in that sense. I am His... And I steward the things that he has given me. But in that stewardship, it means that the right application of the material things that I have accumulated as a result of my work are freely yours. That's really uncomfortable. Because it means that we don't know at what moment the things that we have worked very hard for are going to be asked of us. But if we can learn to live in that posture, how How much more free are we from the self-righteousness that comes from accumulated or fear of losing our stuff? How can my identity ever be rooted in the things that I own if at any moment God could ask me to give those things to someone in need? How could I ever get assurance that my stuff, moth and rust and all of that coming after I die, but even now, how can I have any assurance that that's what makes me who I am if at any moment it could be yours? And in a very real sense, already is. And so we can see with each one of these commands, we are not just being shown how to live a good life; we are being shown how to meticulously work out the sin that remains in our old in our old self, in the old man that tries to rear its head as we go. We're going to go a little bit faster as we as we move through this next section. Once we see how we're supposed to act towards each other, Paul seems to take a shift here at the end of verse 13, um, and from 14 towards the end begins to expand both in terms of how we react to different people and to different circumstances outside the faith. Now, I don't think that these things are now exclusive to what happens outside of these walls or outside of this family. We should still be practicing these things towards each other, but it seems to be that we're going to encourage we're going to interact with them more often as we do our day-to-day lives than as we interact with one another. Bless those who persecute you, verse 14. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, not being haughty, but associating with the lowly, never wise in your own eyes. What is our posture? Towards encountering people who we haven't picked, who are not necessarily part of the storge that we talked about at the beginning—that non-selective family—and it seems to be a posture of self-sacrifice. That that thing that we learn how to do really well towards one another here in the family of faith, that we get good assurance that when we come back to our our family, we're going to get the needs that we have. It seems to me that that is meant to encourage us to go and do likewise with the people out there. And the reason that's harder to do, I think, um, is because we we encounter ideas and situations um, more numerous and diverse, typically outside of these walls than in them. We don't have a really good practice in what does it look like to just, without question, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Because typically we're not cursing each other within the family of God. That typically doesn't happen. Sometimes it does and you need to repent. Other times, when we go out into the world, we haven't developed the muscles of what it looks like to bless those who persecute us. But that idol of needing to get vengeance, of needing to make myself right, is still in there. And so how else is it going to work out unless we live shoulder-to-shoulder, life-to-life, with people who don't necessarily follow Jesus. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. No ellipsis. Final command. How much more kind are you going to be towards your spouse, towards your children, towards people within the family? How much more like Jesus, sacrificing himself on behalf of our sin to make us right with the Father, are we going to be like, if we can say, Yeah, when I'm persecuted, I will bless those who persecute me because if I don't, what other kindness is ever going to lead them to repentance? You see, God makes his promises towards us and we don't always think about how those promises are going to land in the lap of someone who doesn't know Jesus. We don't really think about how those who are far off, Colossians 2, are brought near by the blood of Christ. Many of these precious promises that we hold to for ourselves, we don't consider how those will ever be applied to those who are outside of these walls. And the way they are applied are through commands like this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse. Because in that moment of persecution, I have a precise surgical opportunity to take a precious promise of Jesus and apply it to their life, namely, your sin does not have to be counted against you. Think about it. You persecute me. You hurt me. You do something to me. How else are you going to feel the relational application of the blood of Jesus on your life than if someone who has been hurt and damaged by your choices chooses to just suffer? And suddenly... This one moment that happened thousands of years ago on a cross, on a hill, thousands of miles geographically away from us, radiates through time and space into that moment of the relationship, and that sacrifice through you as a member of the body is shown to someone who may be far off from Jesus, and the Spirit goes to work. We have the real opportunity to embody the promises of Jesus to people who are far off By simply fulfilling his commands. Just a couple of more and then I'll wrap up. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Um, Interesting order there. Um, I'm really good at the crying part. Um, We were singing earlier, Needed the box of tissues, can't make it through, praise the Lord, uh, without a couple of tears. Um, I have easy access to my tears. Um, I do not have easy access to my joy. I do not have easy access to rejoicing with you when God does something good in your life that I have been begging and pleading for? And so we have the command to rejoice first. Do we have the ability, do we have the posture that when God answers a prayer in one of our brothers and sisters' lives, or in the life of someone who is far from him, and we think should not, at least from a posture, be on the receiving end of his blessings, what do we do when he is moving powerfully in their lives? Can we rejoice with them? Moving forward, Living in harmony, um, it's an interesting translation in there. Having the same mind with one another. um, Thinking each other's thoughts. Same is, is kind of the awkward Greek there. Putting in the effort to understand how people think and thinking like them is love. You may not have to agree with them. We call it empathy outside of the text. But being able to actually take the effort to think as other people think To realize that most people are doing the best they can with the tools that they have, and if you think that they're wrong, you may just not be taking the time to think the way they have arrived at those thoughts. Not a moral judgment, but it is an act of love when we are able to engage people's thoughts the way they think them. And then realizing that those things, even if we disagree, do not have to be points of contention. Never being wise in your own sight requires more time than than we have left for us this morning. Um, But what's important here is that the way that we esteem ourselves should not be so high that we are unable to see other people's perspectives. That we walk into situations thinking and assuming our learned posture is that we are right. I am correct. Um, But that we have humility in how we engage with one another. Now, lastly... Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought and do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And suddenly we're back to righteousness. And so if you... If you took my opportunity to sit in Romans 6 for the last 20 or so minutes, um, come back. Because this is is the application of God's righteousness, not just towards those of us who are of the faith, but faith in God's righteousness more broadly. It is faith in God's righteousness and the ability of God to act rightly towards people no matter what. And this is crucial, because if we do not have the ability to generate our own righteousness before God... Why in the world do we think that we have the ability to appropriately measure revenge when we are wronged? We can't even get ourselves ourselves right before the ultimate standard. Why do we think that when something is done against us or done against someone that we've loved, why do we think that we have the ability to appropriately measure out what God is, what, what what the response should be in response to absolute justice? If God has to be the source of our righteousness to make us right, he must also be the source of righteousness for when we are wronged, and if he is the source of our righteousness, if the cross is gloriously enough for our ability to be right before God, then whether the person who has wronged us ever comes to faith for not, ever comes to faith in Christ or not, we know God is perfectly going to respond to the wrongs that have been done to us. That doesn't mean our feelings don't matter. In fact, the first part of the passage says that they absolutely do. We should share that grief with one another. We should walk with one another. We should give our resources to one another when it is necessary to, come, to overcome these moments of intense persecution. But it is never appropriate because we are not, we're not going to get it right. It is never appropriate for us to enact revenge on others when God says, my posture towards your sin against me wasn't vengeance. I did not come after you for your sin. I sacrificed my son for your sin. And the blood that is available to you, that cleanses you from unrighteousness, is available to those who persecute you. So trust me. And we have an opportunity for those deep places of distrust in who God is and what he has for us to work themselves out in our hearts. And so while this is a lot to cover, and there's a whole lot more that could be said we see two broad principles that God's commands can be light. They can be joy-giving when we follow them out of an overflow of our understanding of God's righteousness and that they can get the idols that remain in our hearts out because they expose the way that we would react if we had not, if we had not done it. Now, Paul's closing statement here before we transition into chapter 13, do not, become overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Is the promise that will happen if we engage this? And in the couple of seconds that I have left, I just want you to know that this for me is not just a word of study that I have then brought before you, but this is a word of testimony that God has been working in my life as I have prepared. For the last eight years, coming to church has been exhausting. And it's not because of UBC as a a body. It is not because the word of God has failed me in any way. But it has been because at the bottom of my faith has been a disbelief that God is who he says he is and his sacrifice is enough to make me good. And what that has meant is that even though he has been at work in my life and I have trusted him and I would have said that I am in him, for most of my adult life, there has been a constant effort to make my righteousness my primary pursuit as i have attempted to go after it and as i've been reading this text and preparing to to talk to you all my prayer has been god i can't communicate out of exhaustion i can't stand before your people and say it is good to follow you when with every step i take i am more exhausted in the process and i can tell you brothers and sisters that by submitting myself to his word in this text, he has been extraordinarily faithful to flay my heart open and say, all that's standing between you and seeing joy in this text is repenting of your self-righteousness. The very thing that this text is asking you to do, you need to do it now or you will be unequipped to share. And so if you are finding it hard to love one another, if you're finding it difficult to take the commands of God, and put them into place. Just ask the Holy Spirit, even now, where is my attempt to sustain and meet my own righteousness, keeping you from moving in my life and ultimately then moving in the kingdom? And I can promise you, from his text, and very, very recently in my own soul, that he will do it, and that he is good to do it. And I'm going to ask him now to do it. We're going to have deacons, who are both here up front and around the church, who are equipped and willing and ready to hear from you, to pray with you. If you don't know how to do this, to walk with you through it. As I've said, you have people in the pews with you who will also pray with you. If God, through the Spirit, is moving in your hearts now to turn away from self-righteousness and towards faith in Christ, don't waste the moment. It's available for you now. Let's pray. Dear God, your word is good your words are true and they are powerful and active in our lives. I pray now that as we respond that we would not let those asterisks over the text, that we would not let the hesitation in our lives keep us from responding to the things that you have called us to. Your work on the cross is definitive for us, is definitive for our enemies, and you have called us to respond to it in a way that leads to joy and everlasting life in you. Continue doing the work that you have done this morning into the weeks ahead.